It was a trial like no other trial in history. 78 years ago this week, in fact, it began on the 18th of October in 1945, a trial like no other trial in history. They began in Berlin and for 216 court sessions later that had been shifted to Nuremberg, they're known as the Nuremberg Trials, holding accountable those leaders of a nation that had thought that it was above the law. The Nuremberg Trials were established by the London Agreement of August 1945, where four powers came together and determined that they would hold an international tribunal. Of course, the United States and Great Britain, France, and also the Soviet Union indicted 24 defendants of war crimes and crimes against what? Humanity. A year later, the verdict was rendered on the 1st of October, 1946. Half of them were either acquitted, well, three were acquitted. The rest of the half were sentenced to time in prison from four years to life imprisonment, but 12 of them were then given the sentence of death. And tomorrow marks the 77th anniversary of 10 of them being hanged to death. There were many trials after that. Over the next 60 years, 140,000 Nazis that had been involved in crimes against humanity were tried. One of the strangest cases occurred at the end of last year, just outside that 60-year window. 97-year-old Ermgard Furchner, who had been at the Stutthof camp in Poland, was accused and convicted of complicity in the death the deaths of about 10,000 inmates there. She was a secretary there. The odd thing about that trial was she was tried before a juvenile court, 97 years old. But the reason for that was when she had done this, she had been a teenager. You know, common sense and international law tell us that these judgments were not only necessary, but they were right judge. There comes a time for judgment. So it raises a question then, why did Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, do not judge lest you be judged? If you've noticed over the last month, over the last three weeks prior to this Sunday, we have been dealing with the, with the issue of judgment to some degree or another. In Matthew the 18th chapter, we talked about church discipline. And in that Jesus tells us that we need to judge rightly. We need to discern rightly. When there's sin in the body, it needs to be dealt with, and we need to take personal responsibility and accountability for it. But in that judgment, we need to be what? We need to be redemptive and try to restore the person that has sinned. About three weeks ago, we looked at Matthew, the 13th chapter, and that was, don't weed the crop. And you remember what the Lord said there. It is impossible to judge perfectly about the status of everyone in the kingdom. We don't know everyone's heart. Only the Lord does. And what we discovered from that, I hope, is that we therefore don't use force or coercion with reference to religious belief. And within the body of Christ and within our own denomination, we don't use coercion to bring about uniformity. We strive for love and unity. And last week, we looked at don't judge appearances from John the seventh chapter, things are not always as they appear. 
And you might, might remember in the 24th verse, Jesus summarized by saying that we are to judge. Clearly, we're to judge. We're to judge with what? Righteous judgment. And you remember how he defined that. He needs to be seen as he really is. We need to see reality as it really is if we're going to be rightly judging. And also, too, we must be focused on God's will, not ours, and we must be about bringing about God's glory and not our own. So this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 7, the first five verses, then he brings up this subject about judgment again. And he says in verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? (laughs) You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let me repeat from the previous three sermons. I think it's pretty obvious that what Jesus is not saying here is never judge. Uh, He says don't judge, but what kind of judgment are we talking about? We must judge. We must judge corporately. Uh, The Nuremberg trials are an example of that. There is a rule of law, and there's a need for social order. And so corporately as a society, we have a system of courts and justice for that purpose. Congregationally, we also judge corporately as we exercise church discipline. We must judge individually. We must take personal accountability when we initiate church discipline. We judge then when we seek to be reconciled with others. Somebody is at fault, usually on both sides, and we make a judgment about Who is at fault and why? And if there's sin involved and we try to reconcile with each other, we must judge. But religious judgment must be, as Jesus said in John 7, it must be righteous judgment. And that's what Jesus is talking about today. It needs to be with the right attitude. And he explains it here in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, the context in Matthew's gospel is he has been preaching about what? How to fulfill all righteousness. So you see this idea of righteous judgment from John 7 fits right there. How to see things as they really are. Well, he's covered that in the sermon already by using six antitheses where he has looked at what the people say the Bible says, and then he has explained it as it really is. You see, that's a part of righteous judgment. Uh, he, He is telling us how to discern God's will and what is right according to his commandments. That's righteous judgment. That's the ethic of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking here about our attitude and how that affects the way that we pursue righteousness. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And then he explains what that means to fulfill all righteousness. And he's telling us here, it's important that when we do judge, that we need to perceive ourselves as we really are. We need to treat others fairly. And it's crucial to the process. You see, there's there's some impediments to righteous judgment. Self-righteousness is one of them. 
Another is when we don't see the wrong in ourselves, self-deception. And another, he defines clearly hypocrisy. All of this you might summarize as we have in the title of the sermon. It's being judgmental. You see, judgmentalism, of course, with each one of us, and we're all guilty of it in some time or another, distorts our perspective. It blurs our vision so that we can't see things as they really are, and we can't render righteous judgment. So when you look at this passage, there's a principle, and the basic principle is obvious. Don't judge, or you will be judged. And the word that he used there can be used a couple of ways. It can be used to discern and to determine and to separate rightly, and, and that's what we're talking about in the courts of law. But it can also be used to censure, to pronounce judgment upon and hand down the sentence as a result of the judgment. And it's here that Jesus is focusing. He's saying, don't censure in the wrong way. You see, Jesus is not opposing all judgment. We know that. There is such a thing as righteous judgment, and that's good. But it results only when we can see clearly, and we can decide things without our personal biases getting in the way. Here, Jesus is warning against judgmentalism. It's when we're blinded by our own sin, by our own problems, by our own hypocrisy, and we censure other people based on our prejudices, the way we think things should be our personal agendas. And as a result, there is a reciprocal kind of thing that happens here that he says next in the passage. The way you judge is how you will be judged. In other words, it, and, and this applies to, to both bad judgment and good judgment. What he's saying here, I think, is if you treat people unfairly, you will be what? Treated unfairly. But implied in this also is if you treat people fairly, guess what? you'll be treated fairly. You see, when we deal it out, it will be dealt to us not only in the same way, but to the same measure, whether it is good or bad. And he illustrates with two parables. The first one, he goes from the smaller to the bigger. <laughs> you see a small little splinter in your neighbor's eye, and you've got this huge log, this big log in your own eye. How can you remove the small splinter? And the second parable is about the bad eye. He's basically saying it's physically impossible. If you've got something blocking your vision, it is physically impossible for you to see the splinter in the eye. Or if you do see it, it's impossible for you to be able to pick it out. You see, this has something to do with what he's already said in the Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 6, he talked about this eye problem. The eye is very important for seeing things as they really are. In verses 22 and 23, if you just flip back maybe a page in your scripture to chapter 6, he says what? The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of what? If your eye is clear, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body would be full of darkness. And if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, he's talking about an eye problem here seeing things clearly. The essential problem is this. If we try to correct somebody else's problem, another person's problem, but we're blinded by our own problems, it is impossible. We are hypocrites. The word there means to be a pretender. It means to be a play actor. We're just play acting righteousness. Just like he has condemned those in chapter 6, 
They're hypocrites. He's used this word before. In chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about acts of piety. And he said, you know, when you give ostentatiously as a, a devotional act, it's not an act of piety. It's hypocritical. When you make a show of praying, we pray publicly. But when you make a show of praying publicly, that's hypocritical. When you grieve openly and you fast openly, that should be done in private. That's hypocritical. The scope of Jesus' concern here is, is, is kind of broad. Uh, this, the, the speck might be sinful behavior. Yes, sometimes there are people in our body, well, each one of us is guilty of this at one time or another. There's a speck in our eye. We have sin in our life, and, and he told us how to deal with that. Matthew 18, if they don't stop doing it, then somebody has to take personal accountability and responsibility and go talk to that person. The speck might be, in fact, something that needs to be dealt with and removed from the eye for that person's good and for the body. But the scope of what Jesus is talking about here goes beyond explicit sin. Sometimes, well, you know, when you have a speck in your eye, at what? A little grain in your eye. It begins to water up and, and you can't wash it out. It does what? It irritates your eye. Sometimes that's the way it is in the body. Are there irritating people in the body? Come on, folks. Sure. And sometimes we are they. Sometimes it is I. Sometimes it is you. You know, sometimes the speck is questionable behavior. We look at somebody and we say, well, they shouldn't be doing that because it doesn't conform to my expectations. Sometimes a speck is a personality trait that is really irritating and it offends everybody and it's the elephant in the room. <laughs> Sometimes a speck is when we have disagreements in the body about secondary matters that aren't of great consequence in Scripture and it causes dissension in the body. Sometimes a speck is simply something like this. Somebody else is behaving a certain way that is, when I look at it, it's outside my comfort zone. So Jesus isn't talking about just about sin. He's talking about things that are irritants in the body that can cause dissension and problems. And he says there's a solution. The first thing that you need to do before you try to deal with the speck is you need to take the log out of your own eye. You need to remove, ask the Lord to forgive sinful behavior. We need to ask the Lord to remove from us self-serving agendas. We need to ask the Lord, and we, we all have them. Ask the Lord to help us deal with our prejudices. And when we do that, when, when the Lord helps us deal with the sin in our own life, the problems in our own life, sometimes the personality quirks that we have that irritate other people, <laughs> the prejudices that we have, when He deals with that, then He enables us to see clearly. Like a high-powered laser that cuts through the fog. Like the spiritual radar, it's like putting on spiritual glasses. And then we can see things the right way. We can see things so that we can rightly judge. We can see things, as it says in John 7, as they really are. We can see Jesus for who He really is, and he, we can see who He really wants us to be. And the purpose of all of this is ultimately so that we can help other persons remove the splinters from their eyes. There's a parallel text, and it's found in Luke, the sixth chapter. I'm going to read it. It begins in verse 37, if you want to turn over there. It is where Luke gives part of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6, 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. 
And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of mercy, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck in your, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You know, the context, it's interesting, the context for Luke's presentation at the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount is different than it is in Matthew. What has happened at the beginning of chapter 6 is the scribes and the Pharisees have criticized Jesus. They have criticized him for doing things, breaking the law on the Sabbath. So at the beginning of that chapter, he has has, uh, allowed his disciples to pick grain in the field on the Sabbath. A little later in that chapter, they are enraged. The scribes and the Pharisees are enraged because Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what they do is they judge him based on what? They judge him through looking at their lens. They judge him by looking at him through their very narrow lens of the rabbinic code's interpretation of Scripture. They have judged him without righteous judgment. And these verses, 37 through 42, it's interesting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Luke puts it in a different place. Look at verse number 36. It follows his command, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In other words, this issue of judgment isn't don't judge, but when we do exercise righteous judgment, it needs to be with the mercy of God. Human judgment needs to be tempered with God's mercy, love, and grace. When we look at Luke, he expands a little bit on the principle Yes, do not judge. He says, if you don't judge, you won't be judged. But then he also says, don't condemn. You see, that tells us the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about. It's the condemning kind of censuring that he's talking about here. And and it's a different root word than judge that is found in Matthew. Here it is a root word which actually means to seek vengeance. So don't seek vengeance. It's always, it's always used in a negative and a harsh way in the New Testament. Instead, have the opposite attitude. Now, the New American Standard Version says then, pardon and you will be pardoned. What's interesting about that, some versions say forgive. But you know what? I'm not really so sure that that's an accurate interpretation. There are very few interpreters, modern interpreters, that do not interpret the word here as pardon or forgive. Young's literal, Smith's literal, the word English Bible, and the English Revised Virgin, Version translate it differently. What does the word mean when it says pardon? It literally means it's not one of the two words that's typically used for forgive or pardon. As a matter of fact, wherever this word is used throughout the New Testament, anywhere else, it is never translated forgive or, or pardon. This is the only place that it is translated forgive or pardon by most modern translators. What does it mean? The word really means let go. It means to set free. It means to release. 
Stop and think about it. Maybe what Jesus is saying here is, if you release, if you let go, you yourself will be set free. Now, there's no question that Jesus taught to forgive. The idea is here. As a matter of fact, the word forgive, aphiemi, the one that's used mostly in the New Testament, in fact, does mean also to let go. So he's talking about forgiving, but there's a very important principle here, I think. You know, we need to learn to let go. We need to learn to let go of some prejudices. We need to learn to let go of our own human agendas. We need to let go of our preconceived notions about the way people always ought to act according to our comfort zone. And when we let go of those things and we try to see people as Jesus sees them, it changes our perspective. Luke goes on to say, it will be measured to you. If we graciously let go, we will be abundantly set free, I think he's saying. You know, this passage is often taken out of context. I know that you know this, but I'm going to say it especially by prosperity gospelers. They lift it out of this context and they say, if you give, God's going to give to you. And if you give in this offering plate, he is going to pour out abundant financial blessings, physical blessings upon you. That is a distortion of this passage. If you want to go to a place where there is the idea that when we give to the Lord, that he will bless us, it's not this passage. It's Malachi, the third chapter. And if we give to the Lord, he will abundantly bless us until it is overflowing. But you know as well as I that what Jesus is not saying in this passage and what Malachi is not saying at the end of the Old Testament, he is not saying, if you put money in the offering plate, your bank account is going to go up next week. Amen? What's he saying? If we are faithful and we honor the Lord and we give to the Lord, he will return blessings that we cannot even imagine to us for our faithfulness. Sometimes he blesses some then with more financial resources so that they can give more. But it's not always financial or physical. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It is taking it out of context. And then he uses two illustrations in in Luke's passage. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? He'll fall into a pit. Who are the blind men? It's the very ones that at the beginning of this passage were censuring Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, seven times he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, you are what? What's the H word that he uses? Seven times he calls them the H word in Matthew 23. What is it? Hypocrite. And then he says, you are nothing but blind guides. That's what he's saying here. It's that kind of hypocrisy that blinds us. And then he says, a pupil is not above his teacher. When he's fully trained, he will become like his master. He won't become the master. He will not become superior to the master. Jesus has already said, a disciple is not above his teacher and a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. In other words, what Jesus is saying in Luke here is if we are going to exercise righteous judgment, we need to see him for who he is and we need to follow him for what he calls us to do and exercise righteous judgment. And then we come to the end of Luke's passage and we see that 
Luke defines the problem and the solution the same way as Matthew, and that is this. Hypocrites, and we all at one time or another hypocritical. He says, first fix your own problems before you try to fix other people's problems. Fix your own defects first, whether it is sinful behavior or whether it is some kind of quirky thing that irritates other people. And then he goes on to say, and then you can help others with their flaws. Jesus did not mean don't help others fix their problems. You see, sometimes that's a misinterpretation of these passages. Oh, well, we don't have any right if a person has a problem out there to help them deal with it. Well, church discipline, we certainly do. If they are sinning and bringing disrepute upon the body of Christ and they will not stop, then we have to exercise church discipline. But folks, even when people have problems that aren't sinful and we notice it, do we have a responsibility and accountability to help them take the splinter out of their eye? Yes, we do. You see, sometimes we miss this in the passage. If you've got a friend that is obnoxious, you need to help him or her see that. But not because you're prejudiced. Because you see things clearly and you come alongside them and in a loving, charitable, gracious, merciful way. You help them do what? Remove the splinter that is in there. In fact, in fact, what Jesus says at the end of this passage in both Matthew and Luke is, you take the speck, the, the log out of your own eye in order to do what? In order that you might help your friend take the splinter out of his or her. So let me apply this very quickly. Number one, harsh judgmentalism and Pharisaic hypocrisy are impediments. When the world out there looks at the church and all they see is harsh judgmentalism, folks, it keeps them from coming to the Lord. It becomes an impediment. And when the church fights over those things, it prevents people from coming to the Lord. And within the body, hypocrisy and pharisaical judgmentalism also become stumbling blocks within the body. We read that out of Romans, the 14th chapter. Kathy Grace read it this morning. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, let us not judge another, one another anymore. Judge them this way, but rather determine that we are then not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. Uh, secondly, our goal in all of this should be what? It should be to help other people. Help other people deal with the splinters in their eyes, their sins, their problems, their prejudices. To help remove obstacles. Help remove the impediments that prevent people from coming from the outside to know the Lord and come into the kingdom. Remove the obstacles within the body and the friction within the body that causes dissension and division. We should be about splinter removal. Thirdly, we can only do this by righteous judgment, and you know what that means. After we deal with our own problems and wash out our eye, and we can see clearly, we exercise church discipline to deal with problems in the body. And we help others with their problems in humility, love, with the idea of restoration in mind. Fourthly, you know, there's some guiding principles, I think, that come out of this passage. Four very brief ones. There's the golden rule of judgment. As I judge, I will be judged. As you judge, you will be judged. As we judge, we will be judged. What does that sound like? 
Well, all you have to do is go seven verses later. And what do you have? What's in Matthew 7, 12? What does it say? Treat others the same way that you want them to treat you. So Jesus is introducing the golden rule right here with the golden rule of judgment. Secondly, I cannot emphasize this enough. Contrariness is not godliness. Contrariness is not godliness. We should strive to live in peace. You know, there's some people, friends, that thrive on controversy. There's some people that just love a fight. You know what I'm talking about? And the way they usually describe it is, or they think that what they're doing is they're on a crusade. I'm on a righteous crusade. I'm going to make sure that everything is right. The problem is, most of the time those people act with a judgmental attitude, and it's not righteousness that they're about, but it's about self-righteousness. They're fueled by judgmentalism and a lack of respect for others, and that is grossly unbiblical. Romans 12, Paul puts it this way. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all persons. But that's a powerful statement. He's not saying respect what is right in the sight of your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying respect what is right with reference to all people. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all persons. Folks sharing the gospel and a dark and dying world out there does not mean that we always have to look like we are hypocritical, judgmental Pharisees. We need to do what? We need to try to live at peace with people out there so that they can see that we are peacemakers, so that they can see that Christ loves them. And yes, there's accountability, I get it, but it does not need to be a judgmental kind of accountability. Last two principles, let go. Let go. Don't hold on to personal grudges, prejudices, judgmental attitudes, self-righteousness. Put away, Paul says to the Ephesians, all bitterness, strife, anger, clamor, and slander. And then last, I know that the word pardon there, I've said, doesn't mean necessarily forgive. It means to let go. But ultimately, the goal is to do what? To preach a gospel of forgiveness in the body bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, Paul tells the Colossians, just as the Lord forgave you, we should also forgive others. You see, we do it for the sake of church unity and peace. We forgive. We also do it for our own good. We forgive. We're not judgmental. Why? So that we can obey Jesus and we can please the Father. Because remember what Jesus has already said in the sermon as he talked about prayer. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will do what? He will forgive you. And if you do not forgive others, he will not forgive you. So yes, this is about forgiveness, indeed. But forgiveness for a purpose. To bring healing and unity in the body of Christ. Forgiveness to bring healing and unity within our denomination. And forgiveness to bring healing and unity by removing the obstacles so that people might come into the kingdom and to see the Prince of Peace. Do not judge. Hmm. Let's not be judgmental. Let's let it go and let God use us as instruments of peace. Let's pray. Father, help us 
to forgive others as you have forgiven us. As you've taught us to pray, for, Lord, we, we do pray that we will not have judgmental and hypocritical hearts. Help us to deal with the logs in our own eyes so that we might indeed help others to come to know and see clearly Jesus as he is. In his name we pray. Amen.